One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. When Facebook unveiled this flashy new headquarters in central London last year, it was heralded as a sign that the company still had confidence in Brexit Britain. Now the question is the other way around. Has Britain, along with many other countries around the world, lost confidence in Facebook? After 50 million users allegedly had their data used and abused without their permission, politicians in the UK and the US have summoned Facebook bosses to answer questions and billions have been wiped from the company's market value. In 2018, much of our internet is controlled by four giants, Facebook, Google, Amazon and Apple. They already shape our shopping, our leisure and our work. And as their power grows, will our politics come next? Or are Facebook's bad headlines a wake-up call for citizens and governments, the beginning of the end for giant ambitions? This is The Real Story with me, Carrie Gracie. Let's get over to our studio and meet the panel. And we're joined from Nairobi by Bitange Demo of the University of Nairobi Business School, from New York City by Louise Matsakis, who's a writer for the technology website Wired, and here in the London studio, Rachel Caldercutt of Dot Everyone, which champions a fairer internet, and Jamie Bartlett, author of forthcoming book The People vs. Tech, How the Internet is Killing Democracy. It's also worth mentioning who we're not joined by today. We invited both Google and Facebook to take part in this programme. They were not available, but welcome and thank you to everyone who joins me. My thoughts on reading up for this programme, I was scared. Warnings that we're not just merging with our machines, but we're merging with the companies that operate those machines. But then I thought these companies wouldn't have billions of users if they weren't doing something useful for those users. So is it really time to panic? A couple of words from each of you. Jamie Bartlett. It is a good wake-up call, and I think it is time to, if not completely panic, uh, at least be aware, as I think a lot of people now are, of just the extent of how important and big these platform companies actually have become. So while they do offer all sorts of fantastic services, and you're absolutely right, that's why we all use them and we're all semi-addicted to them, I think there's a realisation now that there is, there's something bigger going on, that there's these concentrations of power and influence that we've, we've only just started to really understand. Louise Matsakis. Yeah, I think that users and consumers really have to take this moment to examine what the trade-off is because so many of these services are free or extremely discounted compared to what came before them. And I think that users are starting to realize that you are the product and part of that trade-off is your data, it's your time, it's your attention, and that's what you are you know, trading in exchange for these great conveniences. And I think we have to really look at whether or not that is a bargain that is working out for us. Betanga demo, don't panic, but wake up, realise the trade-off. I think we shouldn't panic knowing what these platforms have done, especially towards democratisation, giving more space for people to air their views, where governments used to ban people from talking. I think it's a wake-up call that we begin to look for solutions that would provide a better understanding how the, our data are being used. And Rachel Caldercott, you champion a fairer internet. What's your take right now? 
We've been talking to lots of people about their feelings about tech. And while maybe they haven't been panicking, there's a lot of worry, anxiety. People feel that technology is good for them as individuals and not for the world at large. And I think this is a good moment to turn that into a story that everyone's really able to understand. Well, let's hear now from someone who believes it is really time to wake up. Dylan Curran is an Irish data consultant. His investigation into his own relationship with big tech went viral this week with 85 million views. Dylan, thanks for joining us. What did you find? Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. So what I found mostly was that Facebook and Google were storing pretty much an unnecessary amount of data. So I understand the fact that they need to take data in order to target advertising correctly and make money as a company. The problem really was that they were taking way too much than could possibly be needed to target any advertising. So Facebook, well, they were storing all your messages and all that kind of stuff, which is fair enough, but they were also storing your actual phone call records and your phone text messages and your phone contacts. So these are external to Facebook, but they're still storing them and recording them. Then Google were storing pretty much everything you do online and they record it in a chronological way and they do it constantly so that every time you open your phone and do something google's lodging it whether that be your location your search history your browsing history the apps you're opening and closing the apps you're viewing and clicking your youtube history etc they store everything and keep it pretty much forever and you're a professional dylan i mean you're a data consultant couldn't you have done more yourself to manage your privacy settings So what Google and Facebook basically do is they have a variety of privacy settings. So for instance, Facebook had a privacy menu with 16 submenus. So you'd have to go in and turn off, you know, maybe 50 different settings because they're all, they have so many configurations and the same thing happens with Google. And it's your account, it's your password, surely it's safe and the info is at the end of the day useful to you. What's the problem? So the information is very useful for Google to target advertising and make their services better. What is mostly of concern is that these corporations are essentially monopolies in their fields. For instance, 70% of internet users use Google services. So that's approximately 2.2 billion people. And Google also store on average one gigabyte of data per person that uses their services. So then if you calculate that, they have around 2.2 billion gigabytes of data on people. I think it would be alarming in the future If the world were to change in such a way where that information could be used for malicious purposes, then that would be a very bad thing indeed. And what can you do then as a user to prevent that? I think you tried to delete some of this material. Yeah, so I had actually gone in and deleted multiple things. Like I've cleared my search and browsing history. I've deleted some files from my Google Drive, which is cloud storage service. I've gone in and deleted certain apps, etc. And I found that they were still keeping all of the data. And then I also found that if you're using Google Incognito, which is a private browsing service, you are under the impression that none of your data is being collected. However, they do still keep the information. It's just that the information is not kept locally. You say like your wife wouldn't be able to see what you're looking at, but then Google could. And is there a problem with Google being able to do that? You you mentioned a, a kind of potential malicious actor. What do you imagine that malicious actor doing? What would their motive be? And how would they get access? I mean, it's your account, you've got the password. 
I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist or tinfoil hat and just say, you know, like Google is going to control the world. I don't think that's what's happening. I think they're actually a great company. My problem really is that we don't know what the future holds. Four years ago, we we never would have said Donald Trump would be president, and now he is. So we have no idea what's in the future. And a company with this kind of information is a potential danger to everyone. Dylan Curran, thanks so much for joining us. I want to ask the panel how they feel about uh, that. Is this kind of information a danger to everyone? Bitangen uh, Demo. Yes, it is a, a danger. But what I say, if you look at where the opportunities arise from, is from out of problems. Now we know the problems. We can begin to use technology to deal with this. Bitangi, we'll deal with the future in a moment, but... How about you? Do you sleepwalk through the privacy issues? Do you know how your data is being used? Are you shocked by the stories we've read over recent weeks? Yes, I'm shocked, but it's very difficult to stop using it because we are so much attached to it. And uh, sometimes you can trade your privacy for the conveniences that you are getting, but sometimes you don't know to what extent they are going to misuse your data Luis Matsakis. Yeah, I mean, I think we've already seen the consequences of what this data can do. I mean, numerous tech companies have handed over user data to authoritarian regimes. That's already happened. You've already seen situations where, you know, Google Maps has shaped borders and shaped how people understand the map of the world and political conflicts through what they see on Google Maps. We've already seen how this data can change and shape our world. And I think that there already have been negative consequences of it. I don't think there needs to be a hypothetical bad actor in the future. I think we've already seen, you know, one or two or three companies having the vast majority of data on users in the world already has negative consequences. And for you, is that use of data and the enormous capacity for storing and manipulating data, is that the biggest problem with the current internet? It's a consequence and it's a symptom of the fact that such a narrow group of companies have a monopoly over the vast majority of the way we behave online. And I think that's really the problem is that these companies have grown so large and that's why they've been able to suck up so much of this data. What people need to think about is that they're not just companies. They are larger than nation states. They have more users than any country in the history of the world. And I think that they behave like nation states, not just like corporations. And I think we need to almost come up with like a new terminology to understand their behaviour. Jamie Bartlett, how did we get then to this winner-takes-all world where such a vast and vital market is dominated by so few giants? Well, I think there's something almost inherent in digital technology that leads to that. You could say that a lot of industries tend towards monopolies where big companies, you know, they build up certain economies of scale and so on. But in digital technology, I think it's even more so. I mean, Facebook grew because every time a new person joined Facebook, it made Facebook slightly better, which meant more people would join, which in turn meant more people would join still. And you've seen the same happening for search engines and for taxi apps and all these other big tech platforms, essentially, which is why... These enormous oligopolies or monopolies seem to turn up overnight. And of course, it's very easy for these companies to scale up. I mean, Airbnb can grow much quicker 
than an ordinary hotel company can because they don't have to build the things themselves. So a lot of people in the early 90s thought that this digital technology was going to mean we'd have a really healthy long tail of competitive companies all competing with each other. And of course, that really hasn't been the case. And that's why I wasn't surprised at all when Dylan talked about all the data that had been collected on him. Because when you're working in advertising, and a lot of these companies are essentially advertising firms now, you kind of want to collect everything because you don't quite know what's going to be useful and you don't know what's going to correlate with what. So this is going to get, by the way, far worse because we are about to start creating way more data about ourselves than we have in the last decade. It's really important that we remember this is not just about uh, monopolies either. This is a type of economy which is often trading on people's attentions. And there is this great incentive for these companies to always be alerting you, to be nudging you, to be keeping you hooked into their devices. And I think that actually opens up some much broader problems about how we're you know, communicating with each other. Rachel, what are the many issues raised there? What is the chief concern for you? Probably, actually, that nobody really knows or understands things that are happening. So (laughs) I've been working in tech for over 20 years. Like Dylan, I ought to know how it all works, and I don't. And I I think that, actually, it's the stealth joining up. And if I look back, certainly over the last maybe 10 years, there have been moments of real convenience where it's amazing because everything is coming together and life is really easy and I don't have to think about anything. And then you start to realise, oh, I don't have to think. I suppose the things I'm worrying about more are how it's changing attitudes, how we're acting in the real world. I'm concerned about actually... How do we understand our lives if everything we do is turned into data? And are we able to take back our own selves? But Tange, do you think that we should have or that our government should have woken up to some of these risks sooner? Or do you think it was impossible, except with the benefit of hindsight, to realise just what an enormous transformation these companies were going to wreak in the internet? I think most governments expressed that these companies come, use our data, use the the infrastructure that we have built. They don't pay for anything. We were pushing that they should pay, at least for the cost of infrastructure. But somehow, Europe actually again turned around and supported the U.S., which was supporting these companies. Which are American companies at the end of the day. Yes, and many people felt that that was a chance to begin to have discourse around these very powerful companies across the world. This was almost 10 years ago. So and what could have been done at that point? Could that have been a moment to make them pay for using networks, or what would it have been? I think then they would have had permission from local telcos and work in partnerships, of course, they would have ended up again being so big because even local telcos have so much data about ourselves. You have banks which have so much data about ourselves. When people have been talking about data is oil, people did not understand. Cambridge Analytica and Facebook have shown us that these things is worth something, and so, now we so, need to wake up. So, so are you saying that we should have turned off the tap on the data much sooner and that government should have got much a grip on that? Than- Yes, but now it is too late. They have too much power. They have too much data. 
that even if you did what the Chinese government did, it would be very difficult to reverse. Well, the Chinese government you mentioned, I mean, obviously, I'm someone who spent a lot of time in China. My perception of what the Chinese government has done is to create effectively a fortress of Internet users inside China to develop a very close relationship with a few Internet giants inside China, which have very few data restrictions, to be honest. But at least we would have some leverage over these giants. But now we don't have anything. So so just to understand the Chinese point you're making, you're making a point that China denied access to the big American giants and that other countries should have done the same. The proposal that was on the table was how do we make these giants at least pay for something. But somehow it just collapsed and then we couldn't muscle enough numbers to actually do that. Well, you, you see, I think that there is, there's definitely a sort of war going on now between politics and technology. That's strong and, language, Jamie. Yeah, well, it's a tussle over power. Over and who does it gets put the con- all the politicians on one side or are the politicians divided? I would say, well, as ever, politicians are divided, but there's a lot more general sort of wind in the sails of political parties across the spectrum to be more aggressive in their regulation of these companies. The danger, of course, is that we do go too far with that. And it goes to the level of China, whereby the prospects of anything like sort of a free society, when you have internet companies and the government working together, and the prospects of surveillance that that offers are unprecedented. I'm not hopeful at all in places like China that there's ever going to be something like a free internet or even a free society because I think it's going to be too easy to monitor people. And there's a danger that we do go too far, but I think it is a bit necessary that political leaders push back and lean back in. We've seen there definitely be a change in the sort of language that politicians have been using about this the last couple of weeks. And it felt like they, they almost needed that opportunity, that frustration and anger that clearly a lot of the public feel to be able to do that. We'll come back to that in the second half of the programme. But Louise in New York, I just want to raise something that was said earlier about the extent to which these internet giants stifle competition. Do you think that's now a problem or do you think they're enhancing competition? No, I think that they're absolutely stifling competition. And I think what's really important to understand is why that has happened. And, you know, I think that politicians and citizens have a right to be furious because one of the reasons that these companies thrive and are doing so well is they don't pay taxes. Apple is famous for trying to base itself in other countries who doesn't have to pay American taxes. Amazon is heavily subsidized in various states where it opens up warehouses in the United States. You know, I think Google was the number one lobby group that visited the Obama White House. No company visited the Obama White House more than Google. I think that citizens have a right to be frustrated. And I think one of the reasons that they stifle competition is that For the last several years, I think kind of until this moment, these companies have had politicians in their pocket. You know, they've been awarded government contracts on the promise of bringing jobs. They were supposed to, you know, transform the economy and make it better for everyone. And I think that in a lot of ways, it's only been better for them. And then obviously, companies like Amazon own the server farms on which their competitors have to work. How significant a barrier to entry for rivals is that? 
yeah, I think that's huge. I think Amazon Web Services is a huge portion of this. I think that they're building a lot of this infrastructure. You know, Google's investing a lot in the fiber optic cables that run under the ocean. You know, they're really getting in at the very basic levels that make it really difficult that even if you are a competitor, you still have to deal with these services. I think anytime that there's an AWS, an Amazon Web Service outage, and you realize half the internet is not working, is because half the internet relies on Amazon for its servers. I think that you start to realize how a lot of this infrastructure is really monopolized. And I think it's a good point that they haven't paid for a lot of this. A lot of it was government subsidized. You know, we have incentivized these companies and helped them. And, you know, there's been no meaningful consequence for the lack of taxes they pay, for the regulations that they skirt. I've seen very little consequence. And that's one end of the spectrum. Rachel, I want to ask you about the other end, the consumer experience. It came up earlier, the ways in which our attention is distracted, the question about whether that makes us less good citizens because we're consuming a lower quality of information and our distraction inhibits our thinking about things. Do you think that's a legitimate concern? I don't know that it's that we're taking on a lower quality. I think it's more that we're taking in a lot in the here and now. And so it's really, really hard to think about things that happened a month ago, a year ago. And if we think of how quickly a political change has happened in the last couple of years it's sort of like because of the quantity of information that is out there time is like thicker and and it takes longer for people to understand the things that have happened and i think actually people feel totally overwhelmed that they're taking in lots and lots of things and then just moving on from the thing that's happening now to the next thing which means that you're not really even taking that critical opportunity to say, well, this is a thing that happened yesterday. I'm now reading commentary about it and I can understand it. It's all happening now. Jamie Bartlett, it's not a quality of information problem, despite all the headlines about fake news. It's a quantity of information problem, as Rachel says. Yeah, I think so. I I, I mean, I certainly feel more confused now than ever. (laughs) And yet I have access to more information than ever. And I think that, again, back in those optimistic days of the 90s, we all thought that when there was more information and more connectivity, everyone would be more informed because they would have more access to ideas. But of course, when you're completely and utterly overwhelmed with information you actually start to sort of zone it out and you have to start making very emotional, gut-driven decisions about things. And I think that's one of the reasons why politics has become markedly more angry and emotional. And And you mentioned the word addiction earlier. Mm -hmm. Do you think we're addicted from choice? Is that us or is that because we're being manipulated by these companies, using data, making a portrait of our psyche, using that? to hook us. I mean, is it coming from us or is it coming from the companies? Well, I mean, like all addictions, I mean, we are partly to blame ourselves, but it's made a lot more difficult to resist. You've got to remember for the tech companies, because they are advertising firms, every tiny tweak is tested and retested and could a different colour button or a different word font or anything like that, if, if it means that people stay online for a fraction of a second longer, that can be worth millions of dollars. So they do it. And so it does often play to our vulnerabilities. It spots them. There's not an evil genius behind that figuring it all out. Often it's just testing and retesting. Although I'd add that actually the value of our animals is advertising. And no one's thinking about the consequence of that. So when you're being drawn into an experience and offered another video or another notification, it's entirely about you looking at 
the screen. It's not thinking about how that is changing the world. And just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service. And this week, we're looking at building a better internet. Each week, we tackle a different topic and you can download the programme every Friday. I do encourage you to subscribe so you don't miss an edition. There are also many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. You can try Witness, our history series, which is told by the people who were there. First-hand accounts of some of the most important events which have helped shape our lives and the places we live. There are five podcasts a week and an incredible archive to delve into. Do please also let us know what you think of this podcast. Any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into, you can email us our new address, therealstory at bbc.co.uk or tweet me at BBC Carry. Now, though, let's get back to this edition, uh, looking at building a better internet. My guests from Nairobi, Batangain Demo of the University of Nairobi Business School from New York City, Louise Matsakis, who's a writer for the technology website Wired, and here in the London studio, Rachel Caldicott of Dot Everyone, which champions a fairer internet, and Jamie Bartlett, author of forthcoming book The People Versus Tech, How the Internet is Killing Democracy. Thank you all for staying with us. Now, earlier in the programme, we looked at our internet giants and how they came to rule. Now let's get a first thought from each of you on whether anyone, regulators, rivals, users should be trying at this point to constrain the internet giants. Louise Mitsakis. I think at this stage, really, the only group of people that has any power over these companies are nation states. I think that you have to really look to regulators. I think that, sure, if you want to delete your Facebook account or if you want to try an alternative to Google or something, that's great. And you should do that. You know, you can get an, an encrypted email address or you can use an alternative social network. But I think that what users will find is that it's really hard to avoid these companies in your day to day life. You know, it's really hard to avoid them in your job. You know, if you need to use Google Maps to get somewhere, I really think that the pressure needs to be put on the regulators because they've gotten to the point where I don't think that the market alone and that consumers can really shift power away from these companies. Bitangain Demo, is it the regulators or is it the market? It will be very difficult to regulate uh, companies that cut across uh, several nations. What regulations? I mean, U.S. regulation, Kenyan regulation. That's why I said that the solution is more around technology. Let's go now to Rachel. Actually, I think the companies are big enough to handle being regulated differently in different territories. And that almost the saying that it's too hard is making it easy for them. And that if they're able to hold all this data and do all these things, then they ought to be able to meet appropriate standards in different countries. And Jamie, is it regulators, is it rivals or is it the users? Well, I suppose I'll go for the users, seeing as no one said that yet. And while I agree that regulation is important, I I actually think that that there's a big role for users here too. Yeah. Okay, let's hear from someone who takes the regulator view, because Sophie Intvelt is a Dutch member of the European Parliament. And she's been involved with the new European legislation that comes into effect in late May. So I asked her what will that General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, what will it actually do? Companies or organizations cannot use your data anymore without your consent or by putting, you know, this 40-page uh, privacy notice in legalese that nobody understands. That is simply not acceptable anymore. They have to be very clear about what your data will be used for and what you consent to. There will also be an obligation on 
companies to put in place the right practices. They cannot say, as Facebook has said now, oops, sorry, we didn't know. No, they are obliged to take good care of your personal data. In this case, for example, Facebook would really be eligible for a big, huge fine. And do you think this act that's coming in at the end of May in Europe, is that enough? Is that job done from your point of view? No, uh, there's other legislation. There is one law in particular that we are working on right now, the e-privacy regulation. And that uh, regulates, for example, when you're... Uh, emailing or uh, when you're sending uh, apps, you know, what apps, um, or if you are surfing the web, or if you're walking down the street and you're being tracked by uh, by Wi-Fi, that kind of situations. And there, the European Parliament has voted a very strict line. And now, in hindsight, when we're seeing what Cambridge Analytica and Facebook have done, for example, I think we should retain that strict line. And uh, one of the things that we have voted in Parliament, for example, is a ban on tracking. Well, unless you give consent, if you want to be tracked and traced, fine, that's your business. But otherwise, it should not be allowed if you don't want it to. And I think tracking for the purpose of what we call behavioral targeting, sending very targeted, personalized ads, for example, can also be used for political purposes. So the fact that the European Parliament has taken this very strict line, I think, is a, is a sensible thing. Can you sum up for me in a sentence why all of this matters in people's busy lives? Why should they stop thinking about this problem? Why should they care about these two pieces of legislation? First of all, it is about your private rights. It's about your right to a private life. It's about your right to proper protection of your personal data, organizations and companies being obliged to look after your personal data so they won't be leaked. Let's say that, for example, the data of your child or your medical data leak. I mean, you'd be unhappy about that. I think it's also about the quality of our democracy, not just because of the the case that we have now seen, but also the privacy of journalists or politicians or whistleblowers or NGOs. You know, they have to do their work with a degree of freedom because democracy is all about checks and balances. And if nobody is completely free and unobserved anymore, we ruin our free democratic society. And do you think there's a danger that this regulation will separate Europe from the United States or from China because regulations are different or other other parts of the world? No, I don't. Because first of all, I think Americans and Chinese care about privacy and, and freedom as well. First of all, secondly, the European Union has 512 million citizens. We are a huge market. So companies want to be active on the European market, so then we can also set the standards. The current law, which is still in place until the end of May, so it's a bit outdated. Uh, It goes back to 1995, but it's been one of the most influential laws in the world. Lots of countries and also in the United States, they are bit by bit copying things that we have done in Europe. I think we lead the way and they will follow. Sophie Infelt, or an MEP um, from the Netherlands. Uh, Rachel Caldicott, do you think that's a neat summary of the way that consent, clear rights and big fines can solve some of these problems? Yes, I mean, they certainly can. And one of the great things we're seeing is that the GDPR is a global standard now and that actually everyone who is wanting to do business in Europe has to meet it. It isn't perfect. It isn't really clear how I as an individual am actually really interfacing with the data that is about me. 
Can I own it? Do I sell it? You know, it's um, not clear yet. And Louise Matsakis, is this, as has been suggested, something that uh, other jurisdictions like the United States, for example, can copy? And is there a is there a kind of refined version that will be rolled out over the next decade? I hope so. There's definitely a renewed push for national privacy law here in the U.S. And I also think there is some hope that because there is so much cross-communication between Europe and the U.S., that some of these privacy regulations will also end up inadvertently protecting Americans, even though they're intended to protect Europeans. Because if you're communicating with a European, then... Um, you fall under that jurisdiction. And I think that is definitely the hope. But I think that it's not going to be enough just to worry about privacy and on the consumer side. I think we need to break these companies up. And I think we need to really think about antitrust regulation here in the U.S. I think it has to go further than just protecting the consumer side. I do think we have to worry about the future of the business side of like, you know, being able to compete with these companies. And if they're really, you know, monopolizing at the ground level, it's going to be increasingly difficult. Okay, um, I want to put that to Jamie Bartlett, because you've done some work on looking at the history of other antitrust problems and situations. I mean, this is this big oil, big banks, mm-hmm. are we just a big tech? Is it just another moment in economic history where we need to get on top of overpowerful players? Possibly, yes. Although there's some important and quite tricky differences. Uh, I mean, if you go back to the the origins of the, the sort of the, the modern antitrust law in the US, it was it's called the Sherman Act in 1890, and it was I mean, it was partly a response to Rockefeller's Standard Oil, like the biggest oil company in the world at the time. It controlled something like 90% of all oil, and there was a lot of concerns about anti-competitive practice. And uh, sounds similar so far. So it, well, it, yes, it does. And Standard Oil was broken up in 1913. It was turned into I think 36 separate companies which incidentally made Rockefeller far richer. But anyway, that's a different point. But then over the years, a lot of um, antitrust uh, or or anti-competition law uh, has has really been about consumer prices and the the great fear that this isn't just about the health of a democracy. Really, this is about monopolies are a problem when they start pushing prices up or consumer welfare starts going down. And the difficulty with these companies is that prices are often very, very low. It's very good for consumers. And breaking them up might lead to an increase in prices. And it's not always clear exactly what they are. I mean, Standard Oil was an oil company, but... You know, Amazon is several different companies all at once. So it's hard to define exactly what you're breaking up. Luis Matsakis, presumably there'll be not just the players themselves who would oppose the breakup that you suggest of these big tech companies, but also some of their users because their services are going to become more expensive and some of their political allies. I mean, do you think it's realistic to get these broken up? I agree that we don't necessarily have the regulatory framework in the U.S. to be able to do that. And I don't know what exactly breaking up would look like. But I think in retrospect, some of the acquisitions that we allowed these companies to carry through with ended up being kind of harmful. You know, Facebook was able to acquire two of its major competitors, Instagram and WhatsApp, Google being able to acquire YouTube. And I think... Those are the kinds of moves that, you know, I think regulators should be a little bit more skeptical of. It seems like every great artificial intelligence startup, every great, you know, hardware startup, they get quickly acquired. And I just wonder whether or not we're doing enough to really ensure those companies can thrive without needing that acquisition. And Rachel, you've talked, I think, about a Geneva Convention for the Internet, a kind of code of conduct. Tell us more about that idea. I suppose thinking about the fact that at the moment right and wrong isn't really defined online. So all the products that we're using and the um, services are defined by the business models as opposed to outright. So 
we've been thinking about what does it look like, actually, if everyone agrees there are things that just don't happen. If you turn off political advertising, for instance, and that is, is a standard everywhere, if you agree that you're not sharing information between certain bodies, and that happens everywhere, and that at the moment the things that are happening are Facebook, for instance, are creating lots of their own rules. They're creating their own rules about whether it's appropriate to show um, nipples or not. They're creating their own rules about the kind of content that is appropriate and they're not really drawing on the history of those things. And for instance, if you think about how um, emoji are created, there's a council of industry people who choose those emoji and they choose the little pictures that are most representative and important of people. And the thing they're actually doing is they are legislating on language and communication. There's actually nobody who is sitting above it and saying these things are all right or not. So in a way, it's putting too much power at the moment into the hands of those private companies. Absolutely. Jamie, I want to come to you because anything of the nature that Rachel's describing, uh, this kind of set of rules, I mean, a rule, for example, to keep political advertising off the internet, that would mm. take massive political will. And if that brings us me back to where we started the top of this half of the programme and when you said that users need to push some of this. Of course, the audience to this programme is users, so tell them what they should be doing in your view. Well, yes, and I'm slightly worried about governments saying what emojis should look like or anything like that. So I get nervous when um, governments have too much control. It would be up to us. (laughs) Well, yes, but the one way that we can sort of shape that is by our choices too so yeah. so that's where yeah where the users okay, come speak in and, to, speak to the so, audience so, what should they be doing with their choices to move this in the right direction well there are all sorts of alternatives to the big tech firms that are out there at the moment i mean we have each of us collectively built all of them through the sharing of our data and the use of their services there are smaller alternatives to each of them they're never quite as good they're a little bit clunky they don't work quite as well but they're never going to get any better until more and more people start using them. And so I think it's quite important for all of us to to think consciously about what we're clicking on, what services we're using, and try maybe to spread your clicks around a little bit further so we can have a slightly more competitive marketplace. And and that will, in the end, depend on us. And we may have to trade some of our convenience uh, in that regard. You know, think carefully about the decisions you make when you click, just like you do when you go shopping, because it's just as important. And Louise Matakis, coming back to a point you made about the competition through the startups, because I suppose what Jamie's just been describing is the nurturing, the fragile young plant in the in the marketplace. And I suppose that also speaks to what you were saying. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's difficult, though, at the user level to kind of incentivize that because you have to really want it. And you have to, you know, I think people sign up for startups and sign up for these smaller companies because they're genuinely useful, not because they have a good interest in mind or they want to take some power away from Google or Facebook. I think people use things that are easy and that work for them. And it's so, really so hard. tell me what, what in the marketplace, what should happen in the marketplace right now to make this work? I think the best thing you can do right now is to update your privacy settings and be careful about what kind of data you share. And I think, you know, as you were saying, to realize that you're contributing to these companies every time you post something, every time you share data with them or share information, you are helping them. And no, you can still use these platforms, but maybe don't share as much. I think that's a good 
thing for people to realize is that you are contributing labor to these platforms and really thinking about it in that context and understanding that, but also realizing that just deleting Facebook or getting a new service is really a privilege. You know, there are a lot of parts of the world where Facebook is essentially the Internet. Should startups not be available to buy? Yeah, I think that would be a good start or at least, you know, making sure that they're able to figuring out a regulatory framework in which they can compete and feel like they can compete without it just being as simple as an acquisition. How's that going to work? You know, I I think it's hard to figure out exactly how it would work, but I think that making sure they have the right funding, you know, how are these VC firms organized? I think that, especially in other parts of the world, we have a great, you know, venture capital structure here in the U.S. that's really excited and invests a lot. But I think that in places like Europe, you know, making sure that there are more VC investments, making sure there are more incubators in places like Africa and in places like the Middle East, where I think there's not as much interest in some of these smaller companies. I think that's a great start and making sure that, you know, there are ethical investors who are interested in really seeing these companies thrive, not just see them getting acquired. Pitanga and Demo, I want to come to you because you've been the most hopeful all the way along about the way that problems perhaps produce their own solutions. How do you see the marketplace producing the solution to this problem of the scale and dominance of these internet giants? Actually, it's been said that we need to find how to find the startups. The solutions are there, but they can't scale without resources. This is where we need to pay more attention. I know there is discourse in Europe around creating alternatives. They should start with alternatives that would lead to either not control, but in a way enabling the consumers to have some level, some leverage on these big companies. Uh, And that can be done through growing some of the startups that are claiming uh, to help you with security of your data. Um, that, that would take a lot of protection, though. I mean, we're do, we've already described a world in which politics, politicians are weak in the face of these giants because they're being lobbied, a world where not, not, these politicians not, not the can't politicians. keep up with what's no. happening, and, and a world but, where it, 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 ecosystems for information are degraded as a result of the current inter- internet. So, so are you really confident that this world in which startups can be protected and nourished and nurtured, that that is possible? It is possible to do that. Uh, you've seen in uh, taxi hailing cabs, uh, some have come actually up and uh, and challenging Uber. But we can't say the same with Google because it's too large. But it, it will take a place like, I say, Europe, because there is resources to actually create a very competitive environment or a way of actually enabling the, the consumers to be able to have some leverage. Jamie Bartlett, is is there a day of reckoning coming for these giants in in Europe? Is it going to come from Europe where the regulators and the users together rise up? Well, this GDPR thing we heard about earlier, which some six months ago, no one had really heard of it. And it's a very dry piece of legislation actually is incredibly important. But I'm a bit worried about how well it will be enforced. And a lot of companies still don't really understand it. And a lot of people don't. So there's a bit more to be done there. But that's a key date because the whole industry of data sharing is going to have to reconfigure itself. But the day of reckoning, in a way, was 
Facebook's share price slide. And that's consumer driven and advertising driven. And that's why that's, that is such a powerful force. And, and I mentioned earlier the network effect, the speed with which digital monopolies can emerge. Well, then that can also emerge again. It is possible. And personally, I think that there are going to be new offers on the market soon. And one has to be paid for social media services. Companies that will say, you know, we're not going to collect your data. We're not going to select your adverts, but it is going to cost you a couple of quid a month to use this service. And I could, you know, that's a sort of a freemium example of that where you have different different levels of payment I, I imagine there's going to be a slightly richer offer out there for people and if one catches and takes off it can grow very very quickly Rachel do you think there might eventually be a bit of a splinter net while while these different jurisdictions are behaving rather differently China behind the great firewall the US obviously dominated by its own huge giants Europe now becoming increasingly aware of privacy issues and protective of them and Africa uh, with the kind of startup environment that we were hearing from Batanga. Do you think we're going to get this splinter net effect? I think probably. And the problem really is that we're still not getting the kinds of companies or products that are uh, scaling out of Europe. So at the moment... Why is that? Well, partly, I think it's the attitude of the market. Like, if you've ever been to Silicon Valley, it's quite weird. Um, (laughs) It's informed by a very libertarian view of the world. It's kind of a, a kind of strange melting pot of expertise, money, people who have lots of confidence and permission. And I think we haven't created an environment over here that enables that kind of creativity. However, I think it would need to come with different values at the heart. And I think that's the The kind of values that Jamie was talking about, a company which was actually, you know, its kind of unique selling point would be that it was going to protect your data and look after you and have a duty of care towards you. Absolutely. And in research we've done at Dot Everyone in the UK, 89% of people want terms and conditions to be clearer, and that over half of people have signed up to things they don't understand. So there's a huge market there waiting to be tapped. Well, maybe if anyone does hear this and then sets one of those companies up and they become the new Mark Zuckerberg, yeah. feel free to get in touch with me and, you know, <laughs> but, thank me for the... <laughs> Louise Matsakis um, from New York, what's your take? Do you think uh, a cool eye is required here and that the push, the enormous push that we were talking about earlier for big data is going to overwhelm the opposite push that we've been hearing about in the studio in London for for user privacy? Uh, Yeah, I I do. I do worry that might be the case. I also worry about, you know, if there is an incumbent or there is like, you know, a new the new Mark Zuckerberg, I think, look what happened with Snapchat. You know, Instagram and Facebook just copied all of Snapchat's features. (laughs) But I do think what is really interesting is the idea of this paying a couple a couple dollars a month instead of you know having all of your data sucked up. I do I do think that is an interesting model, and I would be curious about something emerging like that that does not have the data incentive to suck all this up. Well, we're only got a few minutes left, so I want to ask each of you for a prediction. Bitanga and Demo, what do you see the internet looking like? in 10 years from now? Will we have some kind of a cyborg future where these devices are even more an extension of ourselves, and that we just have to get used to it? I think we are just focusing on the American giants, but the local telcos have amassed so much data that if someone started to aggregate this, would 
would have even more damaging data than these giants have. And is that uh, going to happen next, in the next 10 years, do you think? Digital transformation would continue and we better be ready to accept that we need to trade off some of our freedoms. I say this because a lot of the big data that is available out there has a lot more benefits than not having it. We need to have regulations, especially in how that data is used for the benefit of humanity. Rachel? I think in 10 years it will still be messy. I don't think we'll have sorted it all out. Nobody really knows how automation is likely to change things. But I would hope we get to clearer standards, that there's a sense that individuals know who to turn to and that there's less of a hold from a tiny number of companies. Luis Matsakis. I do think we'll have slightly improved rights here in the West, but I do think that the surveillance and oppressive regimes is only going to get worse. I think that you're going to see a really scary situation in places like China. And I do think that places that don't have the same respect for human rights, I think that technology is going to continue to exacerbate problems there. I think that we're going to see really serious issues for Chinese dissidents, for you know possibly Turkish dissidents. That's going to be really scary, but I do think that there will be some more privacy and more rights for people in the West. And I do think that these big companies are going to really have to reckon with what they may have wrought in some of these other places like, you know, Myanmar, where the UN says Facebook is exacerbating a genocide. You know, I think that those issues are going to continue to be a problem. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens for the next billion people who get online. And I think that's going to happen in the next 10 years as those markets get smartphones and seeing, are these markets going to make the same mistakes that we did? Are they going to learn something from what we did? What is it going to be like when you know, they go from no uh, electricity even straight to smartphones, you know, whereas we had landlines and desktops first. I think that's going to be really interesting to see what those markets do. Jamie Bartley, last word to you. You mentioned before this kind of tension between the tendency towards big data versus people's growing desire for privacy. And I think that's going to be a key one. In the next 10 years, there's going to be far more devices online. All of our homes and our cars and our TVs and our fridges and everything is going to be internet enabled. So that tendency towards big data is going to grow significantly. And the benefit of that could be fantastic. I mean, for healthcare alone, it's wonderful. But, I mean, in authoritarian regimes, this is a disaster. And there, are, I think there's going to be a lot more of, a, of, a, of an offer, uh, particularly using decentralised technologies that's harder to control and, and new alternatives to the big platforms and, this, and people worrying more and more about their privacy. And so... In that you mean tension, decentralized platforms like blockchain? Like blockchain technology, I think in the next 10 years will be one way of having social media platforms that are very hard to control and centralize. It's going to cause all sorts of problems for law enforcement, but you know, we'll have to worry about that another day. But if those two things are in tension, then this is where the regulators are really important because the regulators can just nudge it towards one direction or another. And so it's very important that they are pushing it towards you know, socially beneficial goods and user rights and citizen privacy. And on that thought, we have to close. Thank you all so much. Jamie Bartlett and Rachel Caldicott here in London, Louise Matsakis in New York City and in Nairobi, Bitangin Demo. From me and the team. That's the real story for this week. Thanks so much for listening.